Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haber, the stage and screen podcast, episode 54, coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Well, thanks to everyone who came out and supported movies of the decade at the historic Roxy Theater over the last 90 years, <clears throat> nine months. Our final film, La La Land, was introduced superbly by author and commentator Richard Barrios, who joins us here in just a few moments. Richard's book with TCM, Must See Musicals, 50 Show-Stopping Movies We Can't Forget, was released in 2017. It spans those nine decades as well and showcases the most memorable songs, dazzling dancing, and brightest stars ever to grace the silver screen. So if you love movie musicals or movies or music or movies adapted from musicals, you get the idea. You don't want to miss this interview. And another classic film event you don't want to miss is the classic Christmas coming up on December 18th at the Historic Roxy Theater. We'll be joined live by Jeremy Arnold, TCM contributor and author of Christmas in the Movies, 30 Classics to Celebrate the Season, for an in-depth introduction to It's a Wonderful Life, which plays at 7. There will also be a matinee showing of White Christmas, Holiday Bites and Wine, and a special Christmas message from Zuzu herself, Carolyn Grimes. Get info and tickets now at roxybremerton.org, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for your chance to win a pair of tickets to this special Christmas event coming up in the next couple weeks. Well, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas for all of our local listeners, and if you reside in the greater Seattle area, you can catch a special showing of a film made right here in the Pacific Northwest on Thursday, December 9th. BISA Vocal Studio, Abundant House Films, and Faraway Entertainment present A Match Made at Christmas at 7 p.m. at the Historic Linwood Theater, followed by a Q&A with cast members Bainbridge Island resident Shannon Dowling and Seattle actor Jared Hernandez. Get your tickets at farawayentertainment.com forward slash historic dash Linwood and linked here in the show notes as well. And speaking of Bainbridge Island, get your tickets now for the lesser known players presentation of Seasonal Allergies by Catherine D. Savino and Kevin Mead, directed and produced by our friends and frequent stage mates Christiane Jacobson and Gary Fetterplace, respectively, and starring a cast of local favorites. Get ready to laugh away your throat tickle and clear your sinuses with a healthy dose of holiday fun, and get your tickets now at lesserknownplayers.org. And even closer to home in Port Orchard, Western Washington Center for the Arts kicked things off last weekend with their holiday variety show, which runs through December 19th. Check out a review of the show, available now on our Facebook page, and then pick up tickets at wwca.us and enjoy an entertaining evening of singing, dancing, and festive performances is sure to put you in the Christmas spirit. And make sure to visit our YouTube channel for our latest installment of Get to Know a Theater. In this episode, we feature the winner of the 1990 Tony Award for Outstanding Regional Theater, The Seattle Rep. Artistic director Braden Abraham and artistic producer Elizabeth Farwell-Morland joined us for an in-depth look at the Rep's history, its uniqueness in Seattle, and its future post-COVID and a big remodel. Well, if there's one thing that Matt and I both enjoy, it's a trip to the theater, especially when a musical is on the menu, and that goes for both stage and screen. And when we talk to our family, friends, and listeners about their favorite movie musicals from the golden age of Hollywood, and even more recent days, it's fascinating how many of them, in fact, originated on the stage. That's why we're so excited to spend some time over the next two episodes with Richard Barrios. That's right, because if there's one person who can give us an education on, well, to quote his book, Must See Musicals, this, quote, fabulous and fascinating if sometimes peculiar body of work it's richard he's the author of screened out playing gay in hollywood from edison to stonewall dangerous rhythm why movie musicals matter a song in the dark the birth of the musical film which was awarded the theater library association prize and with tcm west side story the jets the sharks and the making of a classic 
and must-see musicals, 50 show-stopping movies we can't forget. Richard has lectured and presented films at the Smithsonian Institute, the American Film Institute, and the Film Forum, written articles for the New York Times, appeared in numerous documentary films, and contributed audio commentaries to DVD and Blu-ray releases. A native of Louisiana, Richard joins us from his home in New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Richard. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Virtually. <laughs> good. I am here virtually, so, you know, there you go. <laughs> Uh, the beauty of Zoom. So we want to talk about your book, and we want to again thank you for the uh, the wonderful introduction you did for us at uh, the Roxy Theater for for La La Land. Indeed, very well received, very informative, and and entertaining. But I wanted to kind of start with something I guess maybe not as um, as happy. I mean, uh, we I think we'd be remiss in neglecting a, a headline that all that hit us all pretty hard of the last couple of days and that being the passing of the incomparable Stephen Sondheim. Um, anyone who has spent any time in musical theater as a performer or a fan uh, definitely owes a debt to, uh, to Sondheim. I mean, in fact, no less than nine of his productions have been made into films, many of them featured in your book, Must See Musicals. So can you tell us a little bit, from your perspective, the impact Sondheim has had in your life and, uh, and work? Well... I have to tell you this, when we spoke that, you know, we would be leading off with Sondheim and I was thinking about it and yeah, you know, and I, I, I heard him lecture a couple of times at talkbacks and things and, you know, how does one track the brilliance of, of the man? But my association with him is actually a little closer than that unwittingly. And I only found this out a couple of years ago. Uh, you may know that his first professional credit, as opposed to his work uh, in, in, with, with uh, uh, college and such, was as a writer for the sitcom Topper in the early 1950s, early to mid-1950s. And that was the one about the ghosts and the alcoholic St. Bernard haunting the kind of mild-mannered guy. Well, Sondheim was uh, one of the writers of that show, and he didn't write a large number of the shows, but he did write some. And he always just kind of disavowed the work, and he said, you can't see anything of me in there, and be that as it may. I found out that one of the shows that he wrote actually premiered on the same day that I did. I, I was born early on Friday afternoon and Sondheim's Topper show ran uh, that night. So, and I did see the show recently uh, and it's not terribly good and it's not very Sondheimish, but I felt what, a, what a, uh, an auspicious star to have been born under. Probably, I would say probably Follies, which is an impossible and also impossibly brilliant show, is probably my favorite and not only my favorite Sondheim show, probably my favorite show of all time. And that has to do with the amazing way in its writing and especially in its music that it keeps refracting the present through the lens of the past and vice versa. Uh, and as a historian, I try to do that in my work by showing how films have impacted, films even of a long time ago still continue to impact on who we are and what we do now. 
And he did that with Follies in a way that I think is totally untouchable. We know the other brilliant shows, and I actually did get to see uh, the original production of Sweeney Todd, which, you know, I still remember vividly that horn going off. But he, he, there's no one you can compare him to is, is, is the main thing. That level of achievement, that level of brilliance, of, of, of intellectual uh, attainment is just, is just staggering. And he had he has had an incalculable effect, and that's just going to continue. And ninety one, yes, is a good run, but it's going to last a lot longer than that. Well, uh, one of your books is specifically on West Side Story, and talks about the original musical film, uh, book with TCM. Now, a new version of West Side Story is on its way and about to be released. And during your intro to La La Land, you spoke about the place of the musical in cinema and addressed whether or not you think original musicals for the screen are still viable, given the real abundance of films that are just repurposed Broadway shows, for lack of of a better description. Are original musicals, in your mind, still viable? Oh, absolutely. It seems like the most distinguished ones these days are the ones that are animated, uh, but they are still occasionally being made. I think La La Land, which is now, what, four years old, is ample proof that something really uh, resourceful and provocative and uh, affecting can be made out of original material. And, of course, now the other side of it, the the films that are unimaginative, you know, regurgitations of the Broadway originals. And, you know, we all have we all know those. Uh, but what's fascinating to me is the way that that whole thing has completely shifted in some ways. And now how many Broadway shows are stage versions of what were originally. It's like every other Broadway musical now is an adaptation. And some of them do it well. The Lion King, you know, is, is, is terrific. Uh, and some of them are just, oh, God, what, you know. I think with both kinds, I think there is a laziness. But when you have someone like Damien Chazelle with La La Land, who is willing to stretch and try interesting things, and who also has a very good grounding in the history of the musical, which I think is also necessary, I think then it's really, it's possible. You know, we live in a world of franchises with films, and musicals don't really fit into that too much. I mean, you had High School Musical and Sing, you know, some of that. But basically, they're not, so that might dim their luster as to, for the money people, because, you know, they're not going to do as well as a Marvel movie, something like that. But there's still, I think, a lot of potential there for the people who are really willing to stretch and who also know their musical cinema. Well, Howard Ashman was instrumental in, in bringing the kind of Broadway musical structure and feel to the animated films that, that Disney did. La La Land seems to be almost original in that it doesn't feel like... All the animated films, to me, feel like musicals, Broadway musicals, but they're, they're animated, they're on, on film. La La Land felt different to me, like it was a, a unique... Uh, piece of art that wasn't necessarily structured like a Broadway show. And I wonder, I haven't seen Tick, Tick, 
Boom Yet, which is a newer, you know, which has just been released, which is also a new musical on uh, on my Netflix queue. I saw it on there uh, uh, the other day, so that's obviously one I'm going to have to be watching. So that that'll be an interesting one to see. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of Broadway adaptations, I thought that the film version of Rent was really. I think the nice word would be dutiful. I didn't find it remotely exciting. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that happens a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, I think other examples, Cats was not well-received. Dear Evan Hansen was oh, not well-received. You have just made what may be the understatement of the second half of this year about Cats. It, let's, boy, that, that's one of the great bombs of all time. That's, that's, that's entering paint-your-wagon territory, so... Something that I really enjoyed about La La Land is I had not seen it before uh, we saw it at the Roxy with uh, your introduction, and there were nods and homages to a lot of classical musicals that I saw and enjoyed as a child, Uh, you know, dancing around the lamppost type stuff, that while it did feel fresh, it really did tip the hat to a lot of those classics, and that's something that, that felt, again, it felt fresh but familiar to me. And I, I think a really smart creator can do something like that, which is also what Sondheim did with Follies, where he did so many pieces in it that were homages or, or in some ways recreations of Broadway shows of the past. And, and you did feel that they were nostalgic recreations, but they also had somewhat of a Sondheimish edge to them as well. And I think La La Land uh, did that really, really well. And of course, the the other thing that he did, uh, Giselle did, that was so uh, I thought really I thought it really worked well was having two leads who were talented and certainly incredibly engaging, but were not musically overwhelmingly gifted. It wasn't. You know, Eleanor Powell and Judy Garland or and Fred Astaire up there, which I loved because it kind of cuts to one of the things about musicals is that they do make us want to often to get up and sing and dance. And here you had a movie about two people, which Woody Allen had also done in a movie I like a lot called uh, Everyone Says I Love You. And that was the same thing where not really musical people, but they did show the, the aspiration, uh, which, which musicals kind of encourage. Well, that, that brings us to your book, Must See Musicals. Uh, Greg and I both received copies and just really enjoyed it. It's, it's a great education. It's easy to read. It's easy to find your favorites and, and learn about uh, potential favorites. And I just I was struck by something that you wrote in your introduction. I'm, I want to just read this paragraph because I think our listeners will appreciate it as well. It was such a beautiful picture that you painted about musicals, and it ends with something that you just really spoke to. You said, these are all memorable images, uh, referring to a, a lot of things that, like we said, stick in our head, things that we saw in La La Land that seem familiar to us. These are all memorable images, and the sounds that accompany them are equally unforgettable. They are, of course, just a few moments from a fabulous and fascinating, if sometimes peculiar, body of work we call movie musicals. For the millions who care about them, musicals are like comfort food without the calories and intoxication without the hangover. They can turn depression into joy and burdens into blessings, and the pleasure they offer usually contains no guilt. They imply that dreams can come true, or at least reasonable. 
and hold the possibility that perhaps we too can express our feelings by dancing like a stair or singing like Streisand. I don't know that I've ever heard uh, such a lovely description <laughs> in print before, and that just jumped out at me. And like you said, it does. It makes you not only want to get up and dance, but by casting people like uh, Gosling and Emma Stone, it, it gives us common folks the, the the feeling that you know what this is this is attainable. Yeah, and at the end of it, you can even get an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us about must-see musicals. It seems like obviously a natural fit for you. Something that came across uh, during your intro was, this guy is passionate. Were you approached by TCM to write this this book, or, or was this your idea? How did that all come about? It wasn't TCM, although I do have an association with them, because in 2007, God, more than 14 years ago now, uh, I co-hosted uh, a, a month-long film series on TCM, based on my book, Screened Out, about gay images on film. But this one, actually, it wasn't TCM. It was the publisher running press. Uh, as it happens, uh, neighbors of mine almost, they're based in Philadelphia. And uh, they were planning on doing a book about, because they already had The Essentials, Jeremy Arnold's book, The Essentials. And they wanted to do a book that would basically be essential musicals. And I don't think they knew who I was or were familiar with my work, but they contacted a colleague of mine, a brilliant writer and historian named Mark Vieira, who has done a couple of books for them on pre-code cinema and on film noir. And he recommended me. So I just, out of the blue, I heard from them one day. And it was, you know, and then basically, essentially the same thing happened with West Side Story, where they contacted me. And after, you know, the, the number of times where I have to go out and pitch myself to a publisher and do all this rigmarole, to be approached is, is, is very, what's the right word, heartening. And of course, with the with the honor and 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 uh, esteem they gave me by awarding me this project, they also gave me a very tight deadline. <laughs> but I like deadlines, and um, I uh, I worked with them pretty well. The main job, and I think this will lead to something you wanted to talk about, was pairing the list to fifty and how that particular group of films was arrived at. And now, obviously, there were going to be some that you had to have singing in the rain, the Wizard of Oz, Sound of Music, you know, but they made a few suggestions that I would not have thought of. I made a few suggestions that they would not have thought of. And eventually we arrived at it. And I had to say goodbye to a, a few that I would have loved to have had. But 50 is not a big number in over the course of you know, nearly 90 years of, uh, of, of filmmaking. So, Well, we, we've talked about the same thing when we had Jeremy Arnold on to talk about his Christmas book. Obviously, he had the same limitation uh, about which films he would you know, include, and there was obviously some that he pointed out to us that he would have loved to put in but didn't get a chance to put in. From your perspective, out of that list, what musical or musicals did you really want to put in there that you couldn't get in there because of the, you know, the limitation that you had? The one that I think was the last one to go, and I didn't want it to go, but 
was uh, Kiss Me Kate, which I enjoy a lot. And it is, I think, one of the more delightful film versions of a Broadway show, and I think it works very well. And if you've ever seen it in 3D, it's really quite an experience because a lot of things come flying out at you. So that was one. There are uh, a couple of lesser known films that I liked very much and I wrote about in uh, especially my first book, Song of the Dark. Uh, they're both backstage musicals, essentially uh, dealing with operetta, more or less, from 1934, both featuring music by Jerome Kern and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein, uh, The Cat and the Fiddle with uh, Jeanette McDonald and Ramon Navarro and Music in the Air with Gloria Swanson. And I liked those very, very, very much. And not too many people know them, which is why I would love to put them in. But, you know, like I said, 50 isn't a large number. They made a couple of suggestions that I was kind of mm, about. And uh, one that... And they actually suggested a film I love, but I tell them it's not a musical, which is The Red Shoes, which has, yes, this incredible ballet at the middle of it, but the rest of it is not, is not a musical. When it won, in fact, back in 1948, when it won its Oscar for musical scoring, it was as scoring of a dramatic film, not a scoring of a musical. So, wow. so I had to kind of convince them about that. Uh, I won't say what it is, but there is one that I knew we had to put in, and it's very important, and people, many people really like it a lot, but I cannot stand it. I won't say what it is, but I will just throw that out there, okay? <laughs> one, one, that, one that got me in the book was uh, King of Jazz, which I hadn't seen before. I think I did a pre-code April thing. One of our guests that we had on before Matthew Turner I had a, at a Twitter event that would pre-code April where we watch a pre-code movie every night. One of them was King of Jazz. And that was really a series of almost a variety show yeah. in a way, more, yeah. than, more than a musical, which to me started to beg the question in my head, well, what is a musical and what is not a musical? It doesn't have necessarily a plot that the music carries through. No, no, none, none. Because King of Jazz was made in 19, it was filmed in 1929, 1930, released in 1930. That was the very beginnings of the musical film. Uh, 1929 was like the boom period. It started with the MGM film Broadway Melody, which is the first real musical. And that one is in must-see musicals also. They didn't really know what a musical film was going to be. So they tried everything. That for me is the most fascinating part of the, uh, of the early age of the musical is not they're not only grappling with the technology because that was, could be very problematic that early on, but they were also grappling with the uh, conventions of the genre and with, you know, the genre itself. So you get, uh, a number of studios, Universal made King of Jazz, but MGM and Paramount and Warner Brothers uh, and Fox all made these big review films without plots. And, you know, like you said, variety shows like Ed Sullivan 30 years before, you know, before the fact. So 
it wasn't until later on that the musical really coalesced more into what we think of as a standardized plot, songs, dances. And of course, that can always get altered in, in provocative ways. But La La Land, you know, as innovative as it is, really follows that basic scheme quite closely. Well, there's obviously strong feelings about musicals, and you mentioned that in your introduction uh, about how people are going to feel strongly about this film being in and this film not being in. And the most important thing is that people are watching them and talking about them and keeping them alive in that way, especially, like you said, we're talking about nine decades of, of movies here. Uh, and we mentioned West Side Story, uh, the impending new release by Spielberg is coming out. People are going to be all over Twitter and everywhere else comparing it to the old version. Uh, there's going to be a lot of controversy, I'm sure. Another another movie that came out that uh, was deemed lesser than its Broadway cousin was Dear Evan Hansen. And you often hear the critics talk about how the movie musicals, like we mentioned a bit earlier, they're just kind of a lesser version. Now, it's kind of like trying to compare two great athletes, you know, Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods. You know, how do you compare them? They're in different eras. Can you compare them? Is, is it fair to, uh, you know, when, when a film version is released, especially maybe even years after the fact? It's always going to be a case-by-case -case basis because some really find the ways to translate and some do it in a very, uh, with a great deal of fidelity. And then some reimagine the material quite extensively. Sound of Music, I mean, it's basically on film, what it was, but they made a lot of changes in it. And those changes stuck so much that what people love is not the sound of music on Broadway, the, you know, the stage musical. They love the, mu the movie. The movie kind of took over, which I said uh, is also sort of what happened with the original West Side Story. Of course, that may change in a couple of weeks. We'll have to see, you know, what, what, what happens with that. <laughs> but I think I, ha I didn't see Dear Evan Hansen. I heard very, very mixed reports about it. I wonder... I think that there are some musical adaptations, you know, film adaptations of shows that maybe just don't lend themselves to cinema as much. And I wonder if that might have been one where just the stage, the, the personal impact was necessary for it. I think with Dear Evan Hansen, there was a lot of when you see it on stage, because I've, I've, I saw it on stage in the touring version when it came through Seattle and then and saw the film. The stage version seemed to lend itself to suspending your disbelief, using your imagination a little more, whereas the film version made it more realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That can often that can often be the case. Uh, going way back, the film of South Pacific did that because it used you know the when you saw it. I mean, the locations were beautiful in the film but it was so hyper real that something left it because of that i feel you know of course the the broadway musical that worked very well on broadway that was completely reimagined for film triumphantly so uh was cabaret and uh they're both good but the movie just was so imaginatively reconceived for cinema 
that it just kind of, it, it almost became a new work and, and, a, and a great one, certainly. Uh, Chicago came close to that as well. I like the film of Chicago very much, and I know some people don't as much, but I thought that worked very well. I thought they really came up with a viable way to film it. And that doesn't always happen, of course. A big thank you to our guest, Richard Barrios. Tune in next week for part two of our interview with Richard. And in the meantime, jump online and pick up a few copies of his books for the musical lover on your Christmas list. You can find them at shop.tcm.com and on Amazon. And make sure to follow Richard on Twitter and Facebook. And if you enjoy the show, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or two. Tell them to find us at heilmanandhaver.com and tune in on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. You can keep up with all our latest on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and check out special segments like Get to Know a Theater, our latest from the Seattle Rep, on YouTube. As always, thanks for supporting local theater wherever you are and for joining us on Heilman and Haver. 